Now, I'm not sure if you're like me at all uh, in this regard, but um, I wish that I was a handyman. I, I wish that I had the ability to take tools and to use them for the sake of building things and fixing things. I tell Christy uh, regularly that unfortunately she married a guy who does more harm than good with tools in his hands. Uh, a few weeks ago, I was uh, putting a new sink in the kids' uh, bathroom, and uh, I got to the point of exasperation where I was so frustrated because I couldn't get the part to fit just right. So I'm FaceTiming really handy people that I know, like, hey, look at this. What am I doing wrong? It was so frustrating. And it wasn't until Randy Watts said, hey, Kenneth, try turning it the other way. Sure enough, right? I've been working so hard trying to force it one way and it just would not work. But when I went the opposite direction, it began to work. There was a change in strategy, a change in approach. What we're going to see today is the Apostle Paul in Acts chapter 19. He is plugging away at the gospel, trying to reach Jews for Jesus, and he's hitting a brick wall. But then he changes direction, he changes strategy, and he reaches an entire province with the gospel. Let me show you, grab your Bible and turn with me to Acts chapter 19. As a faith family, we're going through this great historical narrative called the book of Acts written by Luke as he is unpacking what has happened uh, all the way back uh, when Jesus ascended up into heaven and sat down at the right hand of God the Father. We see in Acts chapter 2, the Holy Spirit fell at Pentecost. Thousands come to faith in Christ, they're baptized, a church is established and planted. We then see throughout this book how the gospel is advancing outward. That there are more and more people outside of Jerusalem and to the nations are coming to faith in Jesus. We're now meeting up with Paul on his third missionary journey. He's already come through Ephesus once. He came at the end of his second missionary journey and he heads back to Jerusalem and goes to back to ascending church. Then he returns back to Ephesus on his third missionary journey, which is where we're going to pick up here in just a moment. Now, a few weeks ago, I was in Ephesus. And I had the opportunity to see what the city and the landscape of what's happening there. In fact, up on, this, on the wall, uh, this right here is what's called the Meander Valley. And off to your far left, this is the city of Ephesus. It's between these two hills, these two mountains. And if you look, and I'm sorry for those of you engaging on live stream, you can't see this right now, but just above the exit sign, you'll see this white uh, area up in there. That right there is the probable location of the burial site of Luke. The author of the Gospel of Luke and the author of the book of Acts. In fact, while I was there, I took a picture uh, up on the screen. You can see what it looks like. That's now the ruins uh, of where Luke was buried just outside of the city proper of Ephesus. Now, this is a significant city, a strategic city for the sake of the gospel. When you think about all that has happened here in the city of Ephesus, Paul wrote one of his best letters, in my opinion, the book of Ephesians to the church gathered here in Ephesus. 1 Timothy and 2 Timothy were written to Timothy, the pastor of the church in Ephesus. In fact, it would be here in Ephesus that the apostle John would come and he would write the gospel of John, 1 John, 2 John, and 3 John. In fact, he would eventually be exiled on the island of Patmos and then be brought back to Ephesus where he would write the book of Revelation. 
Think about the significance of this strategic city, of how God has used this place as a way to advance the kingdom. And even more so, I'm going to show you here in a few more minutes, as we look at the text of Acts 9, of how God used this city to reach many, many people with the gospel. Last week, we saw Paul engage these men who were disciples of John the Baptist and How God used Paul to clarify the gospel. He preached Jesus. They believed. They were baptized. We see the Holy Spirit fall in power upon their lives. Then we see God do a new work in Acts 19, beginning with verse 8. And the scripture says this. Paul entered the synagogue and spoke boldly over a period of three months, arguing and persuading them about the kingdom of God. But when some became hardened and would not believe, Slandering the way in front of the crowd, he withdrew from them, taking the disciples and conducted discussions every day in the lecture hall of Tyrannus. This went on for two years so that all the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. As Paul returns back to the synagogue here in Ephesus to share the gospel with these Jews, there were some who believed that Jesus was the Messiah. But there were also others who became hostile towards Christ followers. This morning, I want you to notice what began in the Ephesian synagogue that then moved to the hall of Tyrannus. It multiplied to reach all of Asia with the gospel. I want you to notice first, it began with bold gospel proclamation. It began with bold gospel proclamation. Paul enters the synagogue and he boldly preaches the gospel for three months. He was, look at verse eight, arguing. He was doing Q&A. He was having conversations and debates. He was pointing to Jesus as the promised Messiah of the Old Testament. Here he is surrounded by all of these unbelieving Jews and he's persuading them about about the kingdom. You see, Paul had a heart for Jews. He longed for them to come to know Christ. In fact, he said in Romans uh, chapter 9, verse 1, he says, I speak the truth in Christ. I'm not lying. My conscience testifies to me through the Holy Spirit that I have great sorrow and unceasing anguish in my heart. For I could wish that I myself were cursed and cut off from Christ for the benefit of my brothers and sisters, my own flesh and blood. He said, listen, I'll be willing to go to hell if only the Jews might be saved. Paul was willing to give up his own salvation so that they might come to know Christ. With tears coming down his cheeks, he longed for the Jews to come to know Christ. In fact, he would go on to say in Romans chapter 10, verse 1, it is my sincere and earnest prayer to God for the Jews that they might be saved. He would weep, he would pray that the Jews would come to know Christ. You see, Paul had a passion for the Jews to come to know Christ. And it was part of his strategy. Every time Paul went into a new city, he started in the synagogue. He went to the Jews first. Now, we've already covered this uh, several times in our study of the book of Acts. Let me kind of give you one more refresher of why he did this. He did did this. Remember, Paul was Jewish. He called himself a, a Pharisee of Pharisees. It was part of his pedigree. And so he would go to the place where he had a voice and he had influence and he had an audience. He, we see him go into the synagogue first. That's where he would do. We see it back in chapter 9 in Damascus. When he first comes to faith in Christ, where does he go? He makes a beeline to the synagogue. 
We see it on his first missionary journey in chapter 13. And he got in, Salam, in, uh, in Salamis and then in Pisidian Antioch. And then in chapter 14 in Iconium, what's the first thing he, he does? He goes to the synagogue. On his second missionary journey, in chapter 16, he goes to Derby and Lystra. In chapter 17, Thessalonica, Berea, Athens. Chapter 18, Corinth and Ephesus. What does he do? He goes to the synagogue. Well, here he is on his third missionary journey. He makes his first stop in Ephesus here at the synagogue. You see, Paul wanted to reach Jews with the gospel. He believed it when he wrote in Romans chapter 1, verse 16, For I am not ashamed of the gospel, for it is the power of God for salvation to everyone who believes, watch this, first to the Jew and also to the Gentiles. You see, Paul took the gospel to the Jews first. Why? Because Jesus was Jewish and God wanted to save Israel to bring the Jews to faith in Christ. He is the savior of Israel. And so Paul goes to the Jews first. He's boldly preaching the gospel. He is in the synagogue for three months, arguing, persuading, pleading, begging for men to be reconciled to God. He's preaching to them, verse 8 about the kingdom of God. What is the kingdom of God? The kingdom of God is the rule and reign of Jesus over all things. It's the rule and reign of Jesus over all things. The kingdom of God is both here and it's hereafter. The kingdom has come and the kingdom is coming. Uh, the kingdom is already and the kingdom is not yet. But it is the rule of Jesus over all things. Now hear me, if you are in Christ, if you're a follower of Jesus, you are in the kingdom. You belong to Christ. You are in the kingdom of God through faith in Jesus and you have a king. The king is the Lord Jesus Christ. He has the final authority over your life. Your life is no longer yours. You have been bought with the price, the precious blood of Christ. And so now your life is under the authority and the dominion of Jesus. He has the final say-so over all of your life. But this is not a dictatorship in which we have to humbly submit to someone who wants to harm us. No, no. We have a benevolent king. A king who loves us, a king who provides for us, a king who protects us, a king who knows our name, a king who works for our good and for his glory because the king gave his life for his people. What king of this earth would die for his people? Only one, the Lord Jesus Christ. He is the king of all kings who humbled himself to the point of death, even death on a cross. You are so loved by the king that this king knows your name. He cares about you and he came and gave his life for you at the cross. He died in your place so that your sins could be forgiven. He died so that through faith in him, you can have eternal life, forgiveness of sin and adoption as his son and daughter forever. And this king is the one who not only died, but he rose again. He's the one who defeated death, one who is raised forever. He is the one who is seated in the heavens, interceding for you even now. He's the savior of the world who came and he invites all men everywhere to repent and to trust in him by faith. He's the king, I tell you, and he loves you and he cares for you and he is inviting you to come into his kingdom through faith in himself. Here is Paul in the synagogue and he's preaching the kingdom. He's preaching about Christ. He's inviting people to believe upon Jesus. And some believed. 
Sadly, some did not. So Paul had to make a decision of what to do next, which is number two, it changed to an open-handed strategy adaptation. What began with bold gospel proclamation, it then changed to an open-handed strategy of adaptation. You see, as Paul's preaching the gospel of the kingdom, verse nine, it says, some became hardened. The preaching of Paul was shining a light on the person and work of Jesus Christ. He is the promised Messiah. He's the one you've been looking for. The entire Old Testament is pointing you to the Lord Jesus. He is the Messiah. But instead of humbling themselves and receiving the message with eagerness, like the Bereans in chapter 17, they're hardening their hearts. Pride is growing within them. It looks like anger and vitriol towards Paul and these Christ followers. Whereas some were hearing the gospel and receiving it, there were others who were hearing it and rejecting it. You see, the same sun that softens the butter hardens the clay. There were some who had hearts like butter and the heat and the warmth of the gospel was bringing them to humility and grace and an openness to the gospel. But the same heat and warmth of the true son, the Lord Jesus Christ, it began to harden their hearts like clay. And Paul knew that he had to do something because he and these new believers are being slandered in front of a big crowd of people. And so Paul withdraws. It kind of reminds me of what Jesus said in Matthew chapter 7, verse 6, in which he says, Do not give what is holy to dogs or toss your pearls before pigs, or they will trample them under their feet, turn, and tear you to pieces. Paul has been bringing the riches and the treasures of the truths of the gospel before the Jews, and they are trampling them underfoot. They hate the truth. You see, verse 9 is a warning. You have these Jews for three months. They are hearing the gospel and they're saying, no, 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 no. I will not believe. And for some of you throughout your life, you've heard the gospel over and over and over and you keep saying, no, 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 I will not believe. There comes a point in which God very well may stop speaking. The Apostle Paul withdraws from the synagogue. And there's a sense in which these Jews are saying, we don't want the gospel. You can get out of here with that. And Paul moves on. He changes his strategy, which we're going to look at here in just a moment. But I don't want to move on without us missing this point. If you've been hearing the gospel your entire life, and you've continually said, no, you are in danger. You cannot presume that one day later in life you'll finally believe. Because number one, you don't know the day you're going to die. But then number two, there may come a point in which the Holy Spirit stops drawing and wooing and calling you. Do not harden your heart towards the Lord. Do not be like these Jews in verse 9 who have heard the gospel repeatedly from the most articulate missionary that the Christian church has ever known. They're hearing it from the Apostle Paul and they're rejecting him. You see, what's happening here is a type of blasphemy of the Holy Spirit. Or the Holy Spirit is calling, wooing, they're hearing the gospel, and they're saying, no. No. 
I don't want that. I reject that. I'm going to hold on to my religion. I'm going to hold on to my life. I'm going to hold on to my traditions. I'm going to hold on to what I want. And if you keep saying no to Jesus, there may come a, t- come a time in which he stops calling and wooing you. It's interesting. The writer of Hebrews speaks into this and even to believers in which we are in danger of walking away from Jesus. He writes Hebrews chapter three, verse 12. Watch out brothers and sisters so that there won't be in any of you an evil unbelieving heart that turns away from the living God. An evil unbelieving heart. You see, when sin creeps into your heart and into your life, you become cold towards the things of God. Compromise means you're gonna stop turning your, uh, your heart towards the Lord Jesus and eventually you find yourself at a point in which, how did I get here? You see, you've got to take this seriously where you are sensitive to the spirit. You hear his call and you listen. Maybe if you're here today, you've never put your faith in Jesus. Hear me, today's a day of salvation. Do not harden your heart like Israel did in the wilderness. Humble yourself. Come before a bloodstained cross. Cry out to Jesus to save you, and he will save you. He is a faithful savior, and he is near to all who call upon him in faith. Jesus will save you if you will call out to him. And by faith saying, Jesus, I'm banking my life upon you. I believe you died on the cross for me. I believe you rose from the dead for me. I'm surrendering my heart and my life completely to you. Jesus, I am yours. But also for one another, as we think about following Jesus as followers of Christ together, hear me. If you want to be sprinting across the finishing line of your walk with Christ, if you want to be picking up the pace, hear me, you need the local church. You need brothers and sisters in your life who are going to challenge you, encourage you, to push you to keep going hard after Jesus. The writer of Hebrews would go on to say in Hebrews 3.13, but encourage each other daily. While it is still called today, so that none of you is hardened by sin's deception. One of the ways that God will use your life to help someone else sprint across the finishing line, falling into the arms of Jesus is through your encouragement. Daily looking to encourage people, to pour into them. You pull out your phone and you're texting that person that God's put on your heart that day. I mean, you're encouraging them. Hey, I'm praying for you right now. Here's a scripture verse that God's teaching me right now. Let me tell you how I see God working in your life in which you are continually speaking words of life and encouragement and wisdom into the lives of people all around you because God will use your life to help people persevere in the faith. And we gotta do this together. Can I say this? I'm really proud of you. It's 29 degrees outside, and I know that your bed felt really warm, but it matters that you're here. Your soul needs this, and your soul needs this. Community, encouragement, people walking alongside one another, persevering all the more as we see the day approaching. And here is Paul. He's preaching to these Jews, preaching, 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 and eventually they're like, no, 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 we're out. And so what happens is they begin slandering people of the way. That's what the text says there, verse 9. The way. That's what they were calling Christians at that time. 
it was a, a term of slander, it was a term of derogatory uh, nature, it's a way of mocking them and making fun of them. Because these Christians claimed that Jesus is the only way to God, they also were claiming that they were walking the way of Jesus because that is the way to heaven. And what became a term of derision, of mocking and slandering and making fun of followers of Jesus, they began to hold on to it as a badge of honor. They're like, yeah, we're going to hold fast to what Jesus said. When he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life, no one comes to the Father but by me, we believe that. We believe that following Jesus is the way to eternal life. We know that Jesus is the way to God. And so they were not ashamed to be called followers of Jesus. Question, are you ashamed of Jesus? And when you're at work, you're on the ball field, you're in the classroom, you're going to be tempted to say, man, do you really believe that stuff? You're gonna, people are going to mock you and make fun of you? And you're going to hold on to those fairy tales? Are you really going to hold on to that? Yes. I'm holding fast to the truth because the truth has grabbed hold of me. And I'm not my own. I have been changed by the Lord Jesus Christ. He has made me his own. And I am not ashamed of the gospel. This is what Paul's doing. But as he sees these new Christians, these baby Christians who are being slandered by these Jews, he withdraws. He pulls them out. It's time to nurture, to care for, to train, to disciple, to teach these new disciples in the truth, to raise them up on how they can be faithful to following Jesus. So he, he pulls them out. But Paul also knew that he was in a city of a quarter of a million people who did not know Jesus yet. And so Paul changes his strategy. He switches gears. He heads to the Gentiles. Now, I think there's a lesson in here for all of us. Here is Paul holding fast to the message of the gospel, but he's open-handed with his strategy. I think there's a danger when churches say, we're going to hold fast to our strategy and hold our message loosely. Westwood, that's not going to be us. We are a people who hold fast to the truth of the gospel because the gospel has grabbed hold of us. We don't have the right, the power, or the authority to change the gospel. What we have received has been passed down to us by the apostles through the word of God. And so we're not changing the message. We're going to hold fast with a white-knuckled grip. And simultaneously, we're going to hold our strategies with an open hand. We're going to be thinking of how can we reach more people with the gospel? How can we be looking to engage people who are far from God so that they might come to a saving knowledge of Jesus? You see, we must hold the gospel tightly, but hold our methods loosely. There's a danger when churches do the opposite. And here is Paul preaching the truth, uncompromising on the truth, unashamed of the truth. And so he's changing his strategy. He's looking of how he can reach new people with the gospel. This is what I love about the Apostle Paul. Now he, he's not changing on the truth. Like his theology is firm, but his missiology is moldable. It's changeable. He's thinking how he can reach different people where they are. This is why he says, I've become all things to all people so that I might save some. I'm going to do whatever it takes to reach people with the gospel. One of the things we talk about as a staff is we say, listen, we're going to take risks for the gospel. We're going to try new things. If it doesn't work, let's learn from it and go do something else. 
But if we keep trying the same things over and over again that aren't working, we're the fools. Let's take this message that does not change and let's take this gospel and get it to those who've never heard and the vehicle that we use to use to get that gospel out, we're gonna let the Lord guide and lead us. But let's try new things. Let's take risks. Here is Paul. And he's done here in the synagogue. He has done everything he could. Now it's time for a new strategy. He goes to verse nine, the hall of Tyrannus. Now, while I was in Ephesus a couple of weeks ago, I asked our guide, I said, hey, where, where is the hall of Tyrannus? Like, can you take me to it? And he said, it's right there. And he pointed it out, and this is where it is. Right now, it's still underground. He says, I'm confident that's where it's located. And this guy's been doing it for 40 years. So I was like, okay, I trust you. That sounds good. But he said, he says, we believe the synagogue and the hall of Tyrannus are right there. 25% of Ephesus has been uncovered. There's still 75% they've not even gotten to yet. But it'd be here at the Hall of Tyrannus where students would go to school. It was a public gathering space. People would gather here to listen to politicians or to philosophers. And every day, Paul would go in here and he would go to this lecture hall and he would preach the gospel. Now, this is a significant moment in Paul's ministry. There's something happening here over, this, over the course of two years in the hall of Tyrannus where God does something that reaches a lot of people for the gospel. And I'm about to unpack this for you, so stay with me. But I want you to see this. Paul would write to the Corinthian church, hey, I want to come see you guys. But he says this in 1 Corinthians 16, verse 8. But I will stay in Ephesus until Pentecost. Because a wide door for effective ministry was opened for me, and yet many opposed me. I think the wide open door that Paul's talking about is the Hall of Tyrannus. Because now we're going to start seeing some movement. They're rolling. He's about to see a lot of people come to faith in Christ, and then a movement that's going to reach an entire province with the gospel, which is what leads to number three. It became a disciple-making movement of multiplication. For two years, Paul's preaching, look at verse 10. All the residents of Asia, both Jews and Greeks, heard the word of the Lord. Now, this is, this is, this is amazing, okay? How did this happen? Well, I want you to start with this. If you were to keep your finger in Acts 19 and backpedal to Acts 16, verse 6, we see where the Apostle Paul wants to take the gospel into Asia. But it says the Spirit prevented him. So instead of going into Asia, Paul goes a different direction. Paul heads, uh, I believe he heads north and then goes east. He eventually crosses over. I believe it's the Aegean Sea. He then goes into Philippi. It's amazing. The Holy Spirit, it appears in chapter 16, says, no, you cannot go into Asia. And Paul says, okay. He doesn't throw a tantrum, doesn't get angry. He says, well, I'm going to keep preaching Jesus. I'm going to go in a different direction. And the Spirit leads him over to Europe, modern-day Greece, it's there that he begins preaching the gospel where we see Philippi, Thessalonica, Athens, Corinth, all of these cities where Paul goes in, preaches the gospel, and there's a powerful movement of the Spirit. Now, here we are about five to six years later. Paul's in Ephesus. He goes in the hall of Tyrannus. 
It begins preaching the gospel, verse 10. All of Asia heard the word of the Lord. So what felt like it was a no in Acts 16 was actually a not yet. And here you are saying, God, I'm asking you for this. I want this, not for me, but for your kingdom, for your namesake. God, I'm asking you for this. And it feels like he's saying no. It very well may be not yet. I'm up to something that you can't see. As the sovereign of the universe, I see the bigger picture. I'm up to something bigger than you can imagine. I have been asking the Lord for something for more than two decades. And I feel like he keeps saying no. When very well it may be, not yet. I want to encourage you, you keep praying, you keep asking, you keep knocking, and you wait on the Lord. But do not throw a tantrum, you keep your foot on the gas pedal of evangelism. For Paul, he doesn't sit there on the outskirts of Asia saying, come on, Lord, let me get in there. No, he says, I'm going to keep working. I'm going to keep preaching. And if Paul had stopped in chapter 16, verse 6, we would not have Athens, Philippi, Berea, Thessalonica, all of these cities reached with the gospel. So I want to say to you, if you're asking the Lord, saying, God, I'm ready for this. I want this. I'm eager for this. And it feels like he's saying no. You keep asking. Don't you dare throw a tantrum. You trust him. And you keep going. You preach sharing the gospel. You keep telling your coworkers and your neighbors and your family and your friends about Jesus. You keep exalting Christ and you trust him to do the work. Because what God was doing, little did Paul know that about five to six years later, he'd be there in Ephesus and one of the most strategic cities in the Roman Empire. And God is going to use his ministry there to reach an entire province of Asia with the gospel. That based upon my research, it's about 6 million people there. It's a conservative number, but I don't want to exaggerate. I think it's about 6 million people who are right there in Asia that God uses Paul in those two years in verse 10 to reach people with the gospel. The question is, how did he do it? Well, verse 10 does not tell us how. But here's what I'd like for us to do. I want to kind of give you some clues, some biblical puzzle pieces that I think we can piece together to help us figure out how he did it. So keep your finger in Acts 19. Turn with me to Revelation chapter 2. Revelation chapter 2. Stay with me. I think this is really good. Revelation chapter 2. The Apostle John, the book of Revelation, he's been exiled on the island of Patmos, just outside of Turkey, about a four-hour boat ride. And it's there that he is left because the Roman Empire is tired of him telling everybody about Jesus. And it's there that Jesus pulls back the curtain on the future and gives him a revelation. He says, this is what the future is going to look like. Well, in Revelation chapter 2 and in chapter 3, Jesus himself writes seven letters to seven churches. It's right there in chapter 2. We see a letter to Ephesus, Smyrna, Pergamum, Thyatira. And then chapter 3, a letter to Sardis, Philadelphia, and Laodicea. Jesus writes these letters to these churches. 
where are these seven churches? All of them are less than 130 miles from Ephesus. Okay, stay with me. Here's what I think. Acts chapter 19, it's about 55, 56 AD. The book of Revelation was written about 95, 96 AD. Over the course of 40 years, these churches, they were planted. God was doing something in them and among them, so much so that Jesus writes a letter to these seven churches. In each of these seven churches, God does something so incredible that Jesus writes a letter to them to tell them, here are some things you've got to do to come back to your first love, repent of your sins, run from worldliness. He gives very specific directives to each of these seven churches. I believe verse 10 of Acts 19 is through the Apostle Paul in Ephesus in the hall of Tyrannus, preaching the gospel, making disciples, God sending these people out to these seven cities to plant churches, where now there is a gospel witness to these six million people all throughout the province. And Ephesus, right there in the hall of Tyrannus, is the hub through which the spokes of the gospel goes out. In fact, I put in your notes in the Westwood app the distance from Ephesus to each of these seven cities, plus the two cities of Hierapolis and Colossae, where you see those two cities in Colossians 4, um, that they're right there, not far from Ephesus as well. So we see Paul in verse 10, sharing the gospel, making disciples, and little did he know that he was fulfilling the desire from Acts 16, verse 6, where he's able to reach an entire province with the gospel. So what do we do with this? There's a sense in which, as you are faithful, right where God has planted you, to tell people about Jesus, you have no idea how God's going to use that. God is going to use your conversations at the hospital, at the ball field, in your living room, over a picket fence, right down the street, over a water cooler, wherever you are. When you tell people about Jesus, watch God work. Watch him use your winsome witness for the gospel to be the means through which many people come to faith in Christ. And you have no idea how God very well may be raising up disciples who will become church planters, who are going to take the gospel into areas in which you have never been. And here is Paul preaching Jesus and the gospel is going forth. Churches are being planted and established all throughout Asia Minor as Paul is preaching Christ right there in verse 10 from the hall of Tyrannus. And you get to preach Christ right here in the halls of Shelby County. You have the opportunity to point people around you to the truths of the gospel. This is the impact point. I'm calling all of our, all of our church to it's this. Ask the Lord to open your eyes to opportunities to share the gospel and then seize the moments. Take that moment and share the gospel. You have no idea how God very well may use a conversation to talk about Christ to bring people to faith in Jesus. And God takes believers, he raises up disciples, and then all of a sudden, healthy churches are planted and established. Well, a couple weeks ago, uh, I got a picture from one of our mission partners of a movement of God that's taking place in Nepal. In fact, I got a picture I want to show you. Um, these people's faces are blurred out on a purpose for security purposes. 
But when I got this picture, this church planter said these words. The work in Nepal has been growing at a rapid pace. These photos are new groups that we have started recently and they are filled with mostly new believers. Even though it is dangerous to meet, we still gather to pray, worship, read God's word and challenge each other to share the gospel with our family, friends, neighbors and coworkers. Please pray for us as we go from village to village sharing the gospel and planting churches. The work is risky, but the rewards are great. And Westwood, you and I are a part of that through our giving, by the way. It's amazing how God will take the gospel through ordinary people like us. And when you share the gospel, God very well may be using you to be the means through which an entire nation is reached. You preach Christ. Be unashamed of the gospel. Play offense. Keep your foot on the gas. And let's watch God do a work.